we talked about perhaps may have been the author of First and Second Chronicles, although <clears throat> we can't guarantee that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Ezra, now we come to the section where the children of Israel are headed back. They're coming back into the land. You remember last time they went. So between last Wednesday and this Wednesday, we have gone 70 years. So see how fast time flies when you're having fun? So in Ezra chapter 1, this is how it begins. With the proclamation of the king. Okay, so let me divide the book up for you. Ezra, the first six chapters, deal with a guy named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor of, of uh, Judah, a prince of Judah. He is in the lineage of the king. He's in the line of David. So, hey, Fritz, can you pull down the slider for my wireless? Or I'm going to break my own ears. Um, so, so he is in the line of David. Oh, so much better. Thanks. Zerubbabel goes with the first group. So there's two groups that are going to leave Babylon. So they've been there 70 years. We're going to talk in a moment that Cyrus gives them the okay to go back. The first group goes with Zerubbabel. 900 miles by foot, they travel to come back to Jerusalem, which is wasted. Okay, the wall's down, the city's down, the temple's destroyed. There's nothing there. They go back to rebuild God's house. So when we look at the first six chapters, we're, we're dealing primarily with a guy named Zerubbabel and Yehoshua. Name should sound familiar. It's the same name in Hebrew for Jesus, or what we would say Joshua in English. He's the high priest that's gone with uh, Zerubbabel to accomplish the work. So as we're looking at this book, if you want to kind of wrap your mind around what's going on, you also have Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets that are prophesying during this time. So if you look at those, you'll see those names. Zerubbabel, Yehoshua, or uh, Jehoshua, or Joshua. Um, so you'll see those names that are telling you that we're talking about the first group that came to build the temple. Then later on, we're going to see a second group come in Ezra. And they're actually led by the man named Ezra. And from verse, or from chapter 7 through 10, the first part was rebuilding the temple. The second part is reforming the people. So first they build the temple. Then they reform the people. Ezra is a priest and he comes, uh, from the line of Aaron, the high priesthood. And he comes to help the people get on track with the Lord. Those two groups are 60 years apart. So the first six chapters, Zerubbabel working, building the temple, that takes up 60 years. When we get to chapter 7, 60 years have passed, and the second wave of guys coming out of Babylon comes to Jerusalem. So as we look at Ezra, the first part, we're dealing with the first group. First group. So keep in mind, there were, after 70 years in Babylon's estimates as high as 2 million Jews a part of the kingdom. Now, not that many went into captivity, but we saw what happened to them in Egypt when 70 went, right? 70 went, they were in Egypt for 400 years, and, and what came out of there was multitudes beyond, right? Millions and, and millions. Well, <clears throat> we have, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 going in captivity in 70 years. So, God's people grow 
in, even in affliction, in a time of bondage, their numbers grow. So most people would estimate their numbers in Babylon around 2 million. That's going to be important in a minute because you're going to see how many of those actually go back home. And how many stay in Babylon. So, let's look. It says, Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Now before we go too far, let's back up. There was a a word of the Lord that had come through Jeremiah the prophet. You might remember, I told you about this before. A lot of people put these verses up on their fridge. And they like to quote this particular section of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. If you guys want to flip over there, we can see what it was uh, that God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. So I want want you to get the picture in your mind when this was given. The people are lined up to go with Nebuchadnezzar into captivity. Their nation, their city, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is in ruins. Everything has been lost. Lives lost. Men separated from women. uh, Mothers separated from children. All in a line of slaves. Going back to Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet comes to the people. We'll begin it at verse 10. He gives a prophecy uh, through uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, beginning in verse 3. But we'll just go down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word, my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So they're leaving everything's lost, right? Ruined, temple destroyed, Everything's flat. Chained up, going into captivity. Jeremiah comes and says, in 70 years, God's going to bring you back. Now the Lord told them, when they went, He said, now listen, go. Live life. Have children. Build families. Build a life in Babylon. Because the guys, the adults who are going, are not going to be the ones that come back. You get that, right? So those who were going had an opportunity, a choice. They could choose to prepare the way for their children to return and believe that what God promised He would do. Or they could choose just to get wrapped up in in Babylon. Right? So this is why Jeremiah brings the word. Look what it says in verse 11. This is the verse most people are familiar with. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now while that's being spoken, I want you to picture their whole life is burning. Houses destroyed. Families torn apart. But God through His prophet is saying, My desire in your life, my speaking into your life is not for your destruction, nor to bring evil upon you. He says, my desire, my thoughts, God's thoughts for His people were thoughts of peace. Thoughts that were good to provide for them a future and a hope. That's why He had to take them out of the land. There are some times, folks, we got to discipline our kids, right? We don't like it. 
But you do that not because you enjoy the evil that you bring, but you do it to provide for them a future and a hope. If you don't do it, you're destroying their future and their hope. If you withhold from them all of the consequences of their poor choices, they will never learn about those consequences until later on when they're much bigger. Right? So the Lord is working on the people. He says in verse 12, Then, at that time, 70 years, then, when you recognize all these things to be true, then you will call upon me, and you will go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Now, right now, they're just all torqued at God. But the Lord says, then you'll pray to me, and I'll hear you. Then you'll understand. Because the Word of God told them in Second Chronicles well, chapter 7, right? 14. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Right? So, so there had to be a, a place of repentance and humility before God. And God would do what? Heal them. So He says, you'll pray and I will hear you. Look at verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. We've been talking about it in discipleship. Been going through First John and our discipleship Tuesday, Tuesday night discipleship group, and the Lord, probably the oldest commandment that God has for His people, is to love the Lord your God with everything, all your heart. He wants all of us not to just be a part of our life. He wants to be at the peak of it, right? You know, the the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize, the ultimate treasure. And so he says, when you seek me that way, you'll find me. You will find me. And in verse 14, he says, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations And from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So, in the beginning of Ezra, he says, the word of Jeremiah being fulfilled, that's happening. Cyrus, who who took over for uh, from uh, Babylon, the Babylonians... um, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, was the guy who was king. Nebuchadnezzar's son, uh, Belshazzar, was a puppet. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the real ruler of Babylon, but, but, uh, Belshazzar was in Babylon when it fell. Remember, he's the fellow who was playing with the implements of the temple, and a hand wrote on the wall, many, many tekel, you farson. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Today, your kingdom is taken from you. Daniel the prophet, you know, tells them what the writing means, what's going to happen. And that very night, Cyrus comes in without a battle and conquers Babylon. Now, that's kind of cool history. Do you know about 170 years before it happened, God told us how he would do it? I told you, look for Isaiah 44. Let's go over there. Isaiah 44. 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 Isaiah
four. Isaiah 44, we'll start at verse 28, and we'll go through the first six verses of Isaiah 45. So, well, let me, let me back up a little bit just so you get the sense of it. So, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your Redeemer, He who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens, who all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers, and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward, and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant, and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Well, at this time, it is. But, at the time of Cyrus, it isn't. It's destroyed. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. All those cities are destroyed. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up your rivers. Babylon was impregnable. And the only way into the city was these two giant iron gates and Below one of those iron gates flowed the Euphrates. Cyrus diverted the Euphrates. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. It's 150 years before Cyrus is born. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. To subdue nations before him. And loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. He diverted the Euphrates River. Went right under the gates, came right into the city, that nobody even sounded an alarm. In fact, the Babylonian people didn't know they were conquered for three days. But they just had a new government, but who really cares about the government? I mean, it's like tomorrow we had a new president, as long as I still go to work and somebody still paid me, do we really care? So the, the the government's changed without any huge battle, without any enormous loss of life, other than Belshazzar. So he he gets uh, taken out. He subdued the nations, forty six nations he conquers. He loosed the armor of kings. Remember Belshazzar? It says his loins were loose when the hand wrote on the wall, and he opened before him those double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. It was impregnable. Nobody can get in. But God, He made a way. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places so that you will know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name 150 years before you're born, I am the God of Israel. 
For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, even though you don't know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting. There is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So, Cyrus conquers Babylon. Prophesied. 150 years before it took place, before he was born. And when he came in, there was a guy who lived in Babylon who was given a third part of the nation. See, Daniel was called in by Belshazzar to decipher the writing on the wall. And Daniel's like, why would I want to do this? And he says, I'll give you a third of my kingdom. But Daniel What good is a third of your kingdom? You're going to be conquered in a couple of hours. (laughs) Thanks. I'll have a third of the kingdom for, you know, 20 minutes. Cyrus came in. One of the first things Cyrus is going to do is line up, you know, all the, the leadership of Babylon. And he's going to talk to a guy named Daniel. Who knows Jeremiah's prophecy so well. That in the book of Daniel, he began to pray and repent to God that God would let the people go back to the land. Who, tradition tells us, walked up to Cyrus and opened up the scroll and says, Look what the Bible says about you. Names you by name. So all of a sudden you have this king, the Medo-Persian Empire, the greatest empire on earth, make a decree. To let all God's people go who want to go. Is that not amazing to you? If it's not, I I don't know how to make it amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Maybe the only thing that would be more amazing is that Daniel chapter 9 tells us that there will be a dispersion in the nation of Israel and God's people will be like chaff. Blown to all the nations of the world. But God said, one day I'm going to bring them all back. No nation for almost 2,000 years. Unheard of that a people retained their, their, their language. Their community. But everywhere they went, everybody hated them, so they all kind of bound together. And 1948 is a knee-jerk reaction over the Holocaust and what occurred and why nobody did anything for them while it was going on. They gave them back the land. Not a land like it. The land. Which, by the way, nobody wanted. Nobody was there. The only reason people were upset is because, one, they hated the Jews, and two, when the Jews came in, they made the desert blossom. Prior to that, who cares? It's a bunch of sand. Nobody wanted it. Until it grew. Whoa, wait a minute. Stuff grows here. So, Ezekiel talks about the Valley of Dry Bones. And the Lord saying to Ezekiel, Can I make this nation live again? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. 
So he said, prophesy to the bones. One of them, meat came on the bones, but there is no life in them. Then the breath, the ruach. And they lived, and God said, I'll bring the nation back. He did it in 1948. Still here. Prophesied in Ezekiel. By the way, that's way more than 150 years. From 1948 to Ezekiel is probably closer to 3,000. It was a long time. Crazy. They got a... I don't know why I'm even talking about this. It doesn't matter. But when I was in Israel last time, I got to see the mud gate. I've actually seen the mud gate every time I've been there. But the mud gate is the gate of Dan that Abraham walked through. You guys have any idea how long ago Abraham walked? Abraham, you know, from a book of Genesis? Genesis, that's the one right after creation, right? Are you guys with me? They've got the gate that Abraham walked through. The gate, not one like it, not one that kind of looks like maybe the... No, the one that dates back to the time of Abraham. That's kind of amazing, no? God's Word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to get inside of you to the deepest point and to tell you what's wrong. It is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It'll do surgery on you. That's what it did to Cyrus. Listen to the decree. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. Now, do you see how that word Lord is spelled? All capital letters, right? When you look in your Bible, we've talked about this before, and you see capital L-O-R-D. It is what is called the Tetragrammaton. In the ancient Hebrew, there are only consonants, no vowels. The ancient Hebrew, the vowels were implied. But the four consonants used for the name of God are Y-H-V-H. Some say Y-H-W-H. The the difference is V and W are the same letter in the Hebrew. There there is no V or W. The letter for V and W makes the same sound. Are you with me? It's different language, not English. Y-H-V-H. That's where we added the vowels and came up with Yehovah. Some people say Jehovah. But there's no J in Hebrew. So it can't be J or Joshua or Jesus. There's no J sound in Hebrew. It's Yeh. It's also by adding other vowels we come up with the word Yahweh. Because nobody really knows what the vowels are in every Bible, when it uses those four letters, it uses capital L-O-R-D. So when you see the capital letters of Lord 
It's the name of God. Not just the generic term God. You guys know God's name's not God, right? God is just generic. His name is Yahweh or Yehovah or something as yet we don't know. The vows used to be, the name of God used to be whispered from high priest to high priest on his deathbed. Every time they had to write the name of God, you remember the Bible talks about they had to get a new pen and new ink. They had to take a shower, change their clothes. Every time they wrote his name, they revered his name. Who told Cyrus? Cyrus just used the proper name of God. I say Daniel did. He was there. He's a man of God. He loves the Lord. He knows the prophecies. So I think he introduced Cyrus to the Lord. Now whether or not Cyrus is a believer, like Nebuchadnezzar, you guys all know Nebuchadnezzar wrote a a chapter in the Bible, right? Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. So Nebuchadnezzar was a believer in God Most High. Daniel introduced him. So it's not a stretch, is it, to see, to think that Daniel would introduce Cyrus to the same Lord to say, look at Cyrus, man, God talked about you way before you were born, man. He says, you got a job to do for him. Cyrus says, yeah, but I don't believe in him. And Daniel says, it doesn't matter. He says, he believes in you. He's got a plan for you. So what's he do? The Lord God of heaven has given me And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, where did God command him to do that? There's only one place. Isaiah 45. So he had to have read it. Somebody showed it to him. The Lord God commanded me. I got to do it. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him to go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. For he is God, which is in Jerusalem. So he says, who among you? This is where I tell you. Two million people are there. Forty-nine thousand are going to go. Now, before we get too uptight about that, there's a little story about David that we need to remind ourselves of. You remember David was on his way to to get back uh, um, all the stuff that had been stolen. He had his army. They had just been out fighting. And on the way, some of his guys said, man, we can't go any further. We're, we're toast. We can't keep pursuing these guys. And David said, you stay and guard the supplies. And we'll go on and, and get them. So David went on, got them, they fought the battle, they got all the spoils back, all of the wives and things that their children had been stolen from them. And when they come back to the guys at the supply depot, right, the other soldiers said, hey, hey, you guys don't get another spoil because you didn't fight. Remember what David said? David said, they get equal. They're not less because they couldn't go. They're still a part. They supported us. See, that's why today it's so important that we maybe can't go to Scotland. But we support those who can. 
Maybe we can't go to Iran or Iraq or, or into some of the Islamic countries, but we support those who go. Because God says you share in the reward equal. 49,000 out of 2 million. Not too many, right? But the 49,000 that wanted to go, look what, look what Cyrus says to the rest of them. Whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the man of his place help him with silver and gold and goods and livestock besides the freewill offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus says, hey, if you don't want to go, it's cool, but if you don't go, you help. You support. You give. So that's what the people do. So in verse 4 it says, The heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, listen, with all whose spirits God had moved. Was that any different today than when, when somebody goes out? God moves their spirit. And all of a sudden there's a burden on their heart. Man, i got to go. i got to go. I, I, I'm supposed to be doing something else. Sometimes you don't even know exactly what it is supposed to be. Just like Abraham, right? When God called Abraham, he didn't tell Abraham what he was going to go through. What did he say? Come on, Abraham, let's go. I'll tell you where we're going when we get there. And Abraham went. To as many as God had stirred their spirits. So that's the guys. That's the 49,000. That's the dudes who got up and said, I got to go. But the rest were not absolved of their responsibility because Cyrus said, look, these are the guys God's going to use. They're going to be the pioneers. They're going to be the guys doing the hard stuff. But he says, you support them. You help them. You make sure that, that you get to be a part, even so much as a cold glass of water for one of God's servants was something that the scripture lays out for us is a treasure according to the Lord to give a cup of cool water so that's what happens God moved their spirits the the ruach God moved them and only the ones God moved moved only the ones God moved their spirit they arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem so for the first time in their life some of them they're going to leave everything. You, do you hear that? You know when God calls people to go, you don't get to take everything with you. Everything don't get to go. Andy, Jamie, Beth went. The trailer they owned is still here in town. They, they gave the trailer to the church. All the furniture they owned, still in the trailer. The stuff they couldn't take, they just left behind. Now there are some people who say, well, that, that don't make no sense. You shouldn't go till you can sell it all. Okay. Show me. I, I, I'm really not all that interested in people's opinions. I am pretty interested in what this says. And for every place you think you can show me where God tells us to be prudent, I can show you where Jesus says, unless you forsake all, you're not worthy of my kingdom. 
Sometimes God called these guys who left Babylon. They couldn't put their house on their back. They couldn't hitch it up to the back of their truck. They walked 900 miles. How much are you taking with you? (laughs) Whatever, man. Uh, Let me tell you the key to enjoying a vacation. Luggage. How much luggage you take. I once had to go to Russia for three weeks. And I was touring a bunch of churches down in Russia. And I didn't know that lesson yet. So I had this one, well, three weeks is a long time. I should have only brought like three pairs of pants. i wash them. For the love of Pete. So I got this big old suitcase. Well, big old suitcase. And then I had to bring a bunch of stuff. A couple of boxes of books and a djembe. The djembe, you know them, them drums? So I got all that stuff. Well, I get off the plane in Russia and we get down and we get on the subway. You been on the subway in Russia? Okay, well, I don't know how to... There's no way to even help you understand it. There is not a part of your body that is not touching somebody else. There was a lady sitting on my djembe. A couple of guys sitting on my suitcase. You slowly get pushed all the way back at the back of the car. And then the guy who's taking you says, start working your way up. Because we get off on this next one. You ever tried to go upstream while everything's going downstream? People are coming in. People are trying to get out. Yeah, if I'd have had a backpack, that would have been so much more fun. Big old giant suitcase, not so much fun. You make me walk 900 miles? Yeah, I'm walking through. Kathy's looking at all this stuff. She's starting to pile all this stuff together. I'm saying, no, that ain't going. I am not taking that 900 miles. I'm not carrying your... I know you love your dining room table, but it's got to stay. Unless you can turn it into a cart. And a horse to pull it, <laughs> it don't go. So these guys who are going, they're leaving stuff behind. Now I'm not saying they're leaving everything, they're taking what they can. But they've got a life, they've lived there for 70 years. You ever lived in a house for a long time? We were in that house in California before we came to Idaho, like, I don't know, 15, 16 years. We had a garage sale that you could not believe. And we didn't even put a dent in Kathy's Christmas stuff. Thirteen tables of Christmas decorations. Thirteen tables of Christmas decorations. That's not, that's not counting Easter and, uh, and harvest and Kathy, if you ever come to my house, Kathy decorates for everything. She decorates for Valentine's. She decorates for Groundhog Day. She decorates, if it's a, if it's a day, she decorates for it. So you pile a lot of junk. Now, stay there 70 years. How much stuff you got? You got a lot of stuff, right? You going to carry it 900 miles? I don't think so, man. I don't think so. I think they're going to pitch it. So look at what it said, verse 6. And all those who were around them encouraged them. You see, that's the role. The role of those who can't go, for whom God doesn't stir their heart to go, the role of those who don't go, their job is to encourage those who do. Not to discourage, not to tell them how crazy this idea is, and you shouldn't do it, and God knows for sure He's not telling you to go there. You should stay, and this is crazy that you would leave your grandkids. And this is crazy that you would do something like that. You should. 
No. The job of all those around is to encourage. What else did they do? They encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods, with livestock, with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. So they had the, the idea of the willingly offered. They had a free will offering. They, they gave whatever they want, but there were other things that they gave, practical things that they could use. Well, you're going and we got a, we got an extra four wheel drive, so we'll let you take it. On those days, it was a mule. But they went with horses and mules and livestock and things for sacrifices and things for building. They, they, they hauled a lot of stuff down there. So it says, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. Isaiah 52.11 God said, one day you're going to bring all those things back. And now it's happening. Fulfillment of Isaiah 52.11 All the things taken from the temple are going back. They're, they're going back to the temple. He's sending them back. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, Sheshbazar is an interesting character. Beside the fact that his name is really hard to say, he's not found anywhere else in Scripture, nor is a genealogy given about him, except that he's a prince of Judah. That means he's part of the royal family. Now, the next character that we that we see as we work our way through is going to be Zerubbabel, who's now the governor or the ruler, who is also the line of David. you got two schools of thought. Sheshbazar is somehow related, an uncle or something of Zerubbabel, or Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same guy. Like Daniel and Belteshazzar. Remember how they gave him a Babylonian name? Or, you guys remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That was their real names. Until the Babylonians changed their name. So it's possible that they're the same. It's possible that it's the same guy. Certainly we know Zerubbabel is of the line of David from Jeconiah. And he's going to be the leader who takes him down. <clears throat> so, it says... Uh, um, this is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were fifth, or, I'm sorry, 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So now you're bringing 5,400 articles of silver and gold on top of whatever stuff you got. That, that more stuff getting left. More stuff getting left behind. Now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel, so this is the guy. Now he becomes the focal point of the of the rest up to chapter 6, or through chapter 6. Zerubbabel, who is set with setting the foundation 
and building, rebuilding the temple. So Zerubbabel is going to start that. Now there's a long list of names here, so I'm going to help you. We're going to get through chapter 2 kind of quick. But there's a couple of things I want you to see uh, as we work our way through. So you've got Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Jehoshua. You see that name, Jeshua? That's Joshua. It's the high priest. Uh, it's the same name as Jesus in the Greek. Yehoshua, God is salvation, is his name. Nehemiah, that should sound familiar. That's going to be the next book we read. Sariah, Relay, Mordecai, Bilshan, Marspar, uh, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. So now he's going to divide. Now I want you to notice a couple of things as we work our way through. You notice in verse 3, it says, the people of. You guys see that? Or maybe yours, your Bible says, the son of. Children of. It's the word bene. Bene, which means they're talking about the order of families. People by their families. But if you work your way, then you look at verse 22. It should be different. It should say, the men of. Because it's changed from Beni, which means son of, or family of, to uh, Asne, which means from, the city. So the idea is, this is how they proved who they were. Remember, the genealogies were on the temple. Where's the temple? It's a big pile of rubble, right? Well, you think that everybody had time when when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it to go in and pull out all their family genealogies? Some, maybe, but not all. So the way you proved you were Jewish, that you were of the nation, was either by your family or by the place you were from. So in this list, you have those two uh, um, designations. The designated by family, the people of, or the son of, or the children of. And designated by city, the men of Netophah, Anathoth, uh, Kirjath Aram. It's going to name Bethel, Bethlehem. You know, they're going to name a variety of different cities out of Israel that they could they could prove they were from that city so they would be able to establish their genealogy. Are you with me? So this is a list of guys. You look all the way through here. You're welcome to read it and add up all the numbers. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a good study as you work your way through. Um, but I do want you to see... I don't know if he's talked about the uh, Nethanim in the beginning. I don't see the Nethanim. So uh, if you look at verse... 43. 43. Now, in the next section here, it says, you see the phrase, some of your Bibles should have Nethanim. Do you, do you guys have that? Nethanim. The Nethanim. The, the, the Nethanim were the servants of the temple. You guys remember when we studied Joshua and we met this group of people called the Gibeonites and they pretended to be from a faraway land and they came with moldy cheese and moldy bread to make a deal with Joshua and Joshua didn't ask God. He made a deal with them and then he found out they were just over the hill. So they became servants of the temple and they became the Nethanim and they were absorbed into the nation of Israel. So they became a part. Still, they trace back to the Gibeonites, but still uh, servants of the temple. Working with the Levites, working 
in the temple. That's what they did at the time of, of Joshua and what they did at the time of David. It's what they're doing now. Um, then you have uh, several more names we look our way through. Um, 55 talks about the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Peruda. 59 says, And these were the ones who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, Emir. Um, but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy. So they couldn't point to a city, prove that they were from a city, or prove they were from a certain family. So look what it says. So they could not prove whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 652. So 652, they, they couldn't prove who they were. And you see, you had to be of a certain family, right? You had to be a, of a certain tribe to be a part. You had to be able to show. So it says uh, um, in verse 61, the sons of the priests, the sons of Habai, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, um, who took the wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the, Gilead, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These saw their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So the, the ones who couldn't prove where they were from, they couldn't serve as priests. Until some other, if they found something that they could point to, otherwise they couldn't. They were still absolved or absorbed into the nation, but they couldn't prove they were of a priest. They couldn't be in the priesthood. This is a problem still. Okay, in the nation of Israel today, in 70 AD, all the genealogies were destroyed. Titus Vespasian burned the temple. There's never been a temple since. That was 70 AD. It's 2014. That's been a long time, right? The way that they would know Messiah was that Messiah was to be a son of David. But nobody can prove whether or not they're a son of David now. So, either Messiah came before 70 A.D., or he's not coming. If he came before 70 A.D., it all points to Jesus Christ. They also, in the priesthood, and the designs of the new temple, the temple institute that has all the implements, in order to be a part of the priesthood, or a high priest, you have to be able to point back to Zadok. In the uh, the Aaronic priesthood, you have to point back to him to be the high priest. But there's no genealogies. So the challenge is, how are they going to do that? Some of the guys in the Temple Institute actually think that they can do it through DNA. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to do it or how they're going to work it out. But they've got to be able to prove it just like this. If you can't, you can't be the priest. Are you guys with me? So... It says, and the governor said to them, now this is uh, Zerubbabel, okay? The governor said to them that they should not eat the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So in the beginning, in chapter 1, guys, we have a king making his proclamation. In chapter 2, you have the people reclaiming their genealogy. That's the whole point. They're showing their roots. Hey, we are the nation of Israel. It's official. We're the nation of Israel. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Beside their male and female servants, of whom there were 7, 
8,337. So you can do the math. I round off 49,000 somewhere in the neighborhood. Um, And there were 200 men and women singers. Now this I want you to notice. One, indications of poverty. One of the indications of the fact that they were poor is how many of them were servants. There were 7,337 who were servants. Who were there as a servant of someone else. That's a lot of servants when you got 49,000 people. 7,000, that's, that's a pretty large percentage, right? Of, of servants. Next, their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Now both of those are things that would point to wealth. But they're not, that's not very many. 700 horses, not, that's not too many. So, their camels, 400. Abraham had more stuff than this. Um, their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Donkeys was a sign of poverty. You couldn't afford a horse. You couldn't, it's like you can't afford a car, you have a bicycle. You with me? So they had a, a means to get around. That's what the donkey was. So the donkey showed them to be poor. The fact that they were servants or, or slaves, their own countrymen, shows that they were in poverty. They weren't, this 49,000 that went were not the 49,000 who had the palatial mansions and who had all the nice stuff and who had all that other things going for them. The 49,000 who went, nearly 8,000 of them are slaves. So when they left all, there wasn't a lot to leave. You know? Part of the reason why when you come to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that you don't see the destruction of the church is because in Acts chapter 5, they do this unique thing. In Jerusalem, they all sold all their property and they brought it together and they had all things in common. They gave each other money. They, they, they just made it all so they dispersed whoever had need. And eventually they all ran out. They didn't have any. So then Paul, in his missionary journeys, was going here and there getting offerings, right, for the poor in Jerusalem. So 70 AD, Titus Vespasian comes. He puts a, a, a siege around Jerusalem. The people who left were the people who didn't have nothing. They'd already given it all up. So, it wasn't so hard to leave. You ask the Jewish people in Germany when the Nazis were coming and putting them in ghettos. They kept thinking, it's going to get better. But they wouldn't leave. Why? Because they were the bankers and the jewelers. They had businesses and homes and stuff. And they're trying to hold on to their stuff. And in the midst of holding on to their stuff, they lost things much more precious, right? So it start to make sense why Jesus said, forsake all. Whatever we're holding on to on this earth, it's temporary. It ain't eternal. So we're not to hold on to the temporary things. You guys, I've told you guys how they catch spider monkeys. Yeah, the big thing of uh, marbles. They got a little cage of marbles you can put your hand in. The 
little pretty little marbles. And the monkey sticks his hand in the in the cage and grabs a fistful of marbles. And the hunters come and get him. And the monkey won't let go. He wants them pretty little marbles. So he keeps his hand in the cage. The hunters come up, bop him on the head. Monkey brain soup or whatever it is they they eat with the monkeys. Uh, a lot of us act like them monkeys. Get your hand out of the cage. <laughs> Let go of the dumb marbles before the devil comes and bops you on the head. So, the poor, not all, there were wealthy who went too, right? Obviously, we see there were wealthy who went too. So, the poor answered. They were a little closer to letting go. But the wealthy were able to let go of their stuff too. Because they weren't, it was not only poor. It was not, it's whoever God stirred their hearts. Verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's house, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. When they got there, I want you to picture it, okay? So 900 miles. They've reclaimed their genealogy. We're Israel. And they're gathered together and they're bringing all this stuff. And so they come into Jerusalem. And you picture Jerusalem. It's on top of this hill. And all the walls are down. And the city is flat. Nothing's there. But there's no problem finding the Temple Mount. That's the top. You get to the top of Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mount. Can't miss it. It's the top of the hill. They get to the top of the hill. And and there there's just the rubble of the temple. And as soon as they saw it. As soon as they saw it. They said, man, we got it. Build this. We got to fix it. Immediately when they saw it, they started to give. Look, it says, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. They're ready. They hit the ground, ready to roll. It wasn't, I gotta go find my house, or I gotta go find a place to live, or I gotta go find a place to put my donkeys, or I gotta go find a place for my horse. It was like, man, we gotta get this up. We gotta build the house of the Lord. When they saw God's house totaled, all they could think about was giving their effort to rebuild it. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So they came with whatever gold that they had, and they saw where the temple went, they gave it. They just gave it all. We gotta, we gotta build this. We gotta put it up. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, remember the temple servants, they dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their city. So once they took an offering, they get ready to start the work. We won't go through chapter three. I was going to try to get through three, but there's it's eight thirty. You're never going to make it. So, so we saw the proclamation of the king sending them, and all the prophecy that led up to that. Right, Cyrus sending the people through. Then we see the people reclaiming their genealogy. Now we're going to see the people reclaiming their theology, their worship. They're going to reclaim their worship in chapter three. Now. While they're reclaiming their worship in chapter 3, what do you think is going to happen in chapter 4? You guys don't really think that the devil just was on vacation and doesn't know what's going on, do you? 
So when God's people start to move, and God's people start to go, and God's people start to, to really enter into worship and forsaking their stuff and just going after the Lord, you just got to know, the devil's waiting. He's going to spring it on him in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, God takes care of him. Just like he does for us. God delivers his people two ways. Prophetically, he sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And politically, remember there's still a power who has a lot of power back in Persia. (laughs) Who's calling the shots. So we'll see as we continue to work our way through. Amen? All right, why don't you stand with me let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word, for what your word is declaring, for what your word is doing. God, we know that the prophecies you gave then were true. That you sent the people back, that you called the guy by name. And your word tells us a lot of other prophecies. Your word tells us that you, if you go, will come again to receive me unto yourself, that where I am, there you may be also. You promise that you will come back for us. You told us, no matter what view you have, be ready, be watchful, be in prayer. Every day could be the day that Jesus calls his people home. Every day could be the day we see his face. So we're not to be lazy servants, but we're to be those who believe the prophecies that you gave, who hold fast that you will fulfill every word you spoke. And if you did it already for those prophecies we we looked at tonight and many, many others, then you're going to fulfill the other ones too. So when I'm down and I, and I feel beaten and, and, and like nothing's going right in my life, I can go to Romans 8.28 and say, I know all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. I can know nothing separates me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. I can know that He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That he said he would teach me. That he said he's coming for me. So he asked me one thing. Only be doing what I've asked you to do. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things that I have commanded you. And know, lo, I am with you always. Even until the end of the age. We have a job to do. If we believe what he says, then we will be found so doing. We will be found ready we will be found as those who love His appearing. Because our goal is not the appearing. And our goal is not the escape. And our goal is not any of those things. Our goal is to be found doing what He asked me to do. That which I love, I will praise. That which I value, I will extol. Lord, I pray wherever we go, we would tell people about you. 
Because you are the greatest value in all the universe. Because you are the greatest treasure any man could ever have. Because you are the greatest desire in any man's heart. So Lord, I pray we as a people would find complete satisfaction in you as we look at how you delivered your people back to the land that we would trust you because one day you're going to take us home too. But until that time, we have got a job to do. May we be found so doing. And we give you the praise and the glory for it, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.